0: following is a teaching message from shore community church for more information on shore for our teaching resources visit www.shore.org.nz okay so we're back in our series in ephesians this morning And we are in chapter 4 of Ephesians. So you could be opening up your Bible if you've got one or opening up your Bible app if you have that on your device. And Karen Morne is going to come and read this passage for us this morning from Ephesians 4. Thank you, Karen. Ephesians 4, verse
1: 17 to 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned And holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Bless us, Lord, with this, your word. Amen.
0: Thanks, Karen. Well, I remember growing up as a teenager, one of my favorite bands was DC Talk. Any DC Talk fans in the house? Yes. Oh, more hands than I expected. Yeah. I mean, this was the 1990s. And uh, if you listen to Christian music, which I did, then DC Talk, they were pretty hot property. They were, they were the band to listen to. And I remember they came, one year they came to a Parachute Music Festival, which is like the old festival one. Uh, old version, and uh, I was in the concert, I was front and centre, and I touched Toby Mack's arm while he was crowd surfing. It's like the highlight of my teenage years, right there. That's how exciting my teenage years were. Uh, but, you know, that they, had, they were a good band, I thought, and they had some good music, and they put out some good albums. And one of their albums was called Jesus Freak. And at the beginning of one of those songs on that album, they have a quote, uh, which is a spoken quote, and it's by Brennan Manning, uh, another author. And uh, it stayed with me. I remember it to this day. Some of you that had the album, you might remember the quote as well. It goes like this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. It's pretty challenging. I I was challenged by that as a teenager. Uh, that, That thought, because I saw it in my own life. You know, I mean, I I could acknowledge Jesus with my lips and I could say all the right, I mean, I was a church kid, grew up around the church, and I could sing all the right songs and have the right conversations. But I could walk out the door and do exactly that. I could deny Jesus in the way that I lived. And it wasn't that I was off the rails. I wasn't into any really bad stuff. It's just that a lot of the time my life didn't look much different from my non-Christian friends. And the thought that an unbelieving world would look at that would look at my life and find that as a reason not to believe, um, was hugely challenging for me. And I still find it challenging because I still see the same problem in my life. And probably we all do, those of us that are Christians, to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, this is all of us. We all struggle with this. I think the, the Christians Paul was writing to in Ephesus struggled with this. There's this gap between what we say we believe about Jesus and how we actually live out our lives day to day. There's this chasm sometimes between the confession of our faith and the content of our character day to day. And we don't mean for it to happen, do we? I mean, we, we don't intend this to happen. Most of the time, we don't even notice it's happening. It's a very subtle thing, but just through the pull of our culture and through the people we hang out with and their influence on us and just through the sin in our own heart, there is this gap that opens up between what we believe and then how we behave And we can say the right things and sing the right things and sit in church and and, and listen to sermons and have the right kinds of responses. And yet we can walk out the door and live as functional atheists, live as if God doesn't exist. And an unbelieving world, a secular world, looks at that and says, no thanks. Why would I want to follow that God? Why would I want to follow a God who doesn't seem to make much practical difference? in the lives of his own followers? That's a challenging question. It's a, it's a sobering question. I find it convicting. I think it's a question that we've got to wrestle with. And this is why, this problem is why, we need to hear the challenge of this passage in Ephesians 4 afresh today. Because this is a challenge, this passage. There's no getting around it. We've hit a text that's really troubling, that's really challenging. And the reason it's challenging is because in this passage, Paul talks about behavior behavior. He talks about how we are actually practically supposed to live. He talks about our character. He talks about the practical issues of everyday life. And sometimes these are things as Christians we don't like talking about and we don't like hearing sermons about. What we really want is to go back to the first half of Ephesians, which was all the glories of Jesus and all the spiritual blessings that we get because of Jesus. And you get into the second half and you start missing that. You feel like, let's go back to that stuff. That was the good stuff. How about a bit more of being filled with God's power? How about a bit more of being overwhelmed by God's love? What's all this stuff about behavior, Paul? This just feels like works. This just feels like legalism now. But Paul would say to you, I haven't left grace behind. I'm still talking about grace. I've never stopped talking about grace. He couldn't talk about anything else but grace. But Paul is saying that same grace that filled your life, now needs to work its way out into the fabric of your character. That same grace that you've received, which has changed your heart and brought you into God's family and into his kingdom, now needs to work its way out into your life, into your relationships, into your actions and reactions and habits and practices and who you are in the church and who you are at work and who you are at home. It needs to be grounded in the practical, earthy realities of your life because grace doesn't just save us. Grace transforms us. And that transformation is the heart of what Paul's talking about in this passage. So let's dive in. Let's have a closer look and see where he goes with this. First thing he does in the first few verses here, verse 17 through 19, he kind of tells you the opposite of what we are to do. He tells you what not to do. So verse 17, he says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Well, that's a bit of a problem, because most of the people Paul were writing to was Gentiles. And so Paul's saying, you Gentiles, don't live like Gentiles. But what he's meaning here, he uses the word in the sense of unbelieving Gentiles. Those Gentiles who weren't followers of Jesus. It's not, a, not, not really a cultural reference. It's a reference to unbelievers. He's saying, don't live like those unbelievers. Don't live like the world." Don't live like a non-Christian would live. Don't live like you used to live when you followed all of that stuff and you were that person. Don't live that way anymore. And then he goes on to give you a description of exactly what kinds of lives they lived, these unbelievers. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God, the ignorance of their hearts, lost all sensitivity, given themselves over to sensuality, indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That's a flattering description, isn't it? And it's interesting how this is, a, for Paul, this is a description of unbelievers in the first century Roman context. But couldn't he just as easily be writing about a 21st century New Zealand context? And the, when you read those phrases and you read those sentences, isn't he describing our world? They're full of greed. Doesn't that sound like our culture? Doesn't that sound like Western materialism and consumerism? Given themselves over to sensuality doesn't that sound like our hypersexualized culture? Darkened in their understanding. Doesn't that sound like our culture of moral relativism? These could just as easily be said of us as they were said of Paul's day. It looks different, of course, in Paul's day, and the way these things expressed themselves were in different forms and different shapes. But these these ideas, this condition, these principles, they're just the same as they were in Paul's day as they are now. And what Paul is saying is the world operates by completely different paradigms to the church. The world operates out of a totally different moral compass and moral awareness than the church does. The world operates out of a different moral ecology, if you like, than the world does. Different principles, different values, different priorities. And that's no surprise. I mean, that's what the world does. The world's always going to be the world. That shouldn't surprise us. The world is always going to act like the world acts. What's sad is is when Christians start acting like the world. What's sad is when Christians start looking like this and start getting pulled into this way of life. That's the problem, says Paul. And that's what he wants to prevent from happening. And so he says in verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned. Notice, by the way, that he describes the Christian faith as a way of life. Not just a way of belief. Did you catch that? A way of life. That is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were ta- Here is the heart of what he's saying in this whole passage. You were taught, verse 22, with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's the heart of what Paul is saying here. If you're a Christian, you have two selves. You have two identities. You have your old self and you have a new self. The old self is who you used to be before you were a Christian. And it's a completely me-centered existence. It's it's an existence based on my needs, my interests, my desires, my passions, my wants, my agenda, my priorities. It is an existence that is self-governed, self-directed, self-gratifying, self-promoting, self-serving. It's a totally egocentric existence. And Paul is saying, when you became a Christian, that self, that identity was replaced with a new identity, which is in Christ Jesus. You've received a new identity now, which is in Jesus. It's his righteous life that you take on. It's his obedience that you receive. It's his faithfulness that you receive. It's his holiness that you receive. It's his grace, his hope, his love, his peace into your life. You now stand anchored in the identity of Jesus. But here's the thing. Just because you've received this new identity doesn't mean your character is automatically changed. When you became a Christian, you received a new heart, spirit of God within you. You became a child of God, brought into his family, brought into his kingdom. But your ways of thinking, your ways of acting and reacting, your character was not magically transformed in that moment so that you only ever want to do and say and think what God wants you to do and say and think all the time. I mean, we know this, right? We didn't suddenly become totally reprogrammed people so that our lives practically reflect this new identity. We've received the new identity, but our character is stuck back in the old ways, stuck back in the old self. So here is what Paul is saying. This is the Christian journey. Welcome to the Christian life. It's the life of putting off the old self now, Those old ways of thinking, old ways of speaking, old ways of acting that were conformed to who you were before you became a Christian and to be made new in the attitude of our minds. That word attitude is the same word as spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? Paul's saying you don't just need a new mental attitude. What you need is the Holy Spirit renewing us, filling us. Transforming us. This is not just something you can do on your own, but we receive this power from the Holy Spirit, and out of that, we then put on the new self. We put on the new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, new ways of speaking that are aligned with this new identity we have received. I'll illustrate it to you this way. A um, number of years ago, Anna and I went away for a weekend with some friends. And uh, part of the weekend was uh, down in Ruapehu, and we went for a walk around the base of the mountain. It was winter. It was cold. And I turned up for this long, arduous walk that we were about to do wearing boat shoes. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I had boat shoes on that day. I don't know why I even owned a pair of boat shoes. I, I, I probably should never have even had them. But there I was somehow with these flimsy boat shoes and off we went on this walk and what I didn't realize I mean it was cold and it was rough but it was also a sub-alpine walk I mean we weren't just going over dirt and gravel there were patches of snow and there were patches of ice that we were going over and I had this terrible footwear on and it was kind of blizzard conditions I remember we got to the end point of as far as we were going to go in the walk and we were supposed to have this amazing view could barely see anything we were absolutely freezing and just wanted to turn around as fast as we could and get back I mean, we were lucky that we didn't get ourselves into worse trouble or that I didn't get myself into worse trouble. There should probably have been a headline about me the next day in the paper. You know, stupid man wears boat shoes on walk or something. But I, met, I, I escaped unscathed, but wore the worst kind of footwear that I could. In some ways, maybe that's a parable of what Paul is saying. He's saying, here's this journey that you're walking as a Christian. And if you're going to walk this road, if you're going to walk this journey as a Christian, You've got to put on the, 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 the character footwear, so to speak, that is appropriate for the journey. In other words, you've got to take off the old footwear, the old character traits, the habits, the practices, the vices, that are going to slow you down, that are going to hold you back, that are going to prevent you from being able to walk this path very well. In fact, they could do you damage if you're not careful. And you need to put on the character footwear that is fitting for the terrain, that is appropriate for the journey that we're on, so you can walk it well. Not just for the sake of it, but so that you can walk this well, so that you can get to your destination, so that we can walk well along this Christian life that God has mapped out for us. And so Paul says, you've got to learn to put off the old and put on the new. It's the transformation of our character. Now, what he does with this is he then goes into a whole list of behaviors of what this looks like and the rest of the chapter. This is really about as practical as Paul gets in the whole book of Ephesians. I mean, he really gets right down to it here. And he starts mentioning specific things. And what I've tried to do here is just map this for you on the two columns so that you can see how it falls into the putting off and the putting on category. That's what he's saying. Put off the old self-behaviors, put on the new self-behaviors. So he says put off falsehood, in other words lies, any kind of lying, and put on the truth. Put off bad anger and put on good anger. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Anger sits in both sides of the ledger. Because Paul says, in your anger do not sin. In other words, in your anger there are times when it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry at what makes God angry. Jesus got angry at times. But good anger becomes bad anger when it becomes impulsive, harsh, cruel, vindictive, retributive, punishing. So anger can be good and bad. We need to put off the bad anger, put on the good anger, put off stealing and put on working. How about that? A diligent work ethic and sharing with those in need. Uh, Put off unwholesome talk. And put on encouraging words, whatever is useful for building others up according to their needs, Paul says. And then a whole collection of words at the end put off bitterness and rage and brawling and slander and malice. You could group all those with the word hostility. Put off hostile behaviors and put on kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Now, have a look at that list. As we look at this, as 21st century Westerners, There's there's nothing particularly surprising there, is there? There's nothing that seems really bizarre. I mean, there might be some things that are a little bit surprising, perhaps, but, but nothing that's alarming in that list. But I want you to appreciate that this was completely different to the way it would have been heard in Paul's day. Just think about the context that Paul was living in. Think about the context of the Roman world that these Christians in Ephesus and the surrounding cities were living in. Think of some of the values embedded in Roman society. I mean, this was, a, this was a society, this was a culture that was built on exploitation. Exploitation of people. I mean, the Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves. These beautiful, opulent Roman buildings built by millions of slaves throughout the empire that were horribly mistreated and abused. And this was just part of the system is the degradation of, of slavery. The, the empire was built on the exploitation of women. Women were, were very much considered to be property and chattels for their husbands. And in this heavily chauvinistic society, men thought they could do whatever they wanted, whenever, wherever, however they wanted to women. I mean, the idea of a Me Too movement would have been ludicrous in the first century Roman world. This was just a heavily chauvinistic, abusive, exploitative Culture. This was a culture built on cruelty and and strong-armed military victory and bloodshed. That's the kind of peace that Caesar brought to the empire. This is a society that's rigidly hierarchical, built on rank and status, where at the bottom of the ladder were people considered less than human, the disabled, the severely mentally ill, those in poverty. These were people that were just discarded by the empire that weren't even considered to be lives worth cherishing. There was no sense of social concern. There was no sense of social justice. There was very little social compassion. These were just people that were just hung out to dry, that were just left to beg for for their survival. This is the kind of culture that's going on. There certainly wasn't much sense of forgiveness, certainly not unconditional forgiveness. The Roman gods were not forgiving creatures. They didn't forgive you. They took vengeance upon you. And so there was not much sense of you forgive someone else, certainly not without expecting a heavy price for it. So all these values were swirling around in the Roman world, exploitation and abuse and hierarchy and chauvinism and rank and status, all of this. And Paul writes this kind of list of values into the heart of the empire. This would have gone off off like a depth charge, In the Roman Empire, this would have been so radically different to what everybody thought the ways that you were supposed to live. This was totally subversive. What do you mean, Paul, we're supposed to just forgive one another? That's not how we operate. Not without asking something in return. What do you mean we're supposed to share with those in need? That's not part of our understanding of life. What what do you mean we're supposed to speak only what's encouraging to build other people up? That's not how we live. That's not how the society is built. And Paul says, yes, but it's the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is totally countercultural. Now, we miss a bit of this because we look at that list and we think, well, that kind of sounds like the sorts of values that lots of people would share. And that's true. But appreciate the fact the only reason we think that is because of Paul. These values were totally radical in Paul's day, but gradually they have become adopted as some of the dominant values in Western culture. But that's thanks to Paul and Jesus and the Judeo-Christian tradition. So what, what you're reading here is quite significant in Ephesians 4. Paul is sowing the seeds of what would become the dominant values of Western morality, the dominant values of Western culture. They weren't the dominant values at the time, but over the centuries, many of these have now been adopted by Western liberal cultures so that they now form the sorts of values that Western culture is supposedly built on. For that, all of us, Christian or non-Christian, owe a debt of gratitude to Paul and and the Christian tradition behind him, going back, of course, to Jesus. So we don't notice the glaring discrepancies as much as Paul's culture would. But the point remains, the way of Jesus is a radically different way to the way of the world. The life that Jesus calls us to live is a radically different life to the lives of those who don't know Christ. It's not that Christians are just supposed to be a little bit better than non-Christians. It's not that we're just supposed to be a little bit better behaved or have slightly better manners or be slightly better upgraded versions of non-Christians. It's not that God came to just make bad people a little bit better people. That's not the point. Christians live out of a totally different paradigm. We live out of a totally different vision of life. We live out of a totally different way of what it means to be human. We don't live out of this me-centered existence anymore, or we shouldn't. We don't live out of this ego-driven existence. We live out of a Christ-centered existence, and we, and we let that old self die. We let those old ways of living die, and we live for something bigger than ourselves. We live for a bigger story than ourselves. We live for a God who's a whole lot bigger than ourselves. We live for a different vision of life, Christian morality is built on a fundamentally different foundation. It is radically different to the way of the world. I'm reading a good book at the moment by David Brooks. It's called The Second Mountain. And in it, he describes the kinds of people in the 21st century that would look a bit like the kinds of people that Paul's talking about in the 1st century. He says this, The world tells them to be a good consumer, but they want to be the one consumed by a moral cause. The world tells them to want independence, but they want interdependence, to be enmeshed in a web of warm relationships. The world tells them to want individual freedom, but they want intimacy, responsibility, and commitment. The world wants them to climb the ladder and pursue success, but they want to be a person for others. The magazines on the magazine rack want them to ask, what can I do to make myself happy? But they glimpse something bigger than personal Happiness. Do you see the contrast between the values of a secular culture and the way of Jesus? That for, for, the, for the Christian, it means staging a little rebellion against what the world wants you to want. The world wants you to want what's good for you. Self-interest and self-promotion and self-advancement. But as Christians, we, we stage a revolution against that. And we say, I'm not going to want what the world tells me to want. I'm, I'm going to want what God wants me to want. I have deeper desires than that. I have more substantial desires than just self-gratification. Jesus has placed in me a desire for something greater, a desire for a different kind of life, a desire for a life that's grounded in Him and exists to serve Him and love Him. And therefore, it's a life for others. It's a life for the sake of others. It's a life where I'm willing to sacrifice and and be poured out for the sake of other people. I'm not going to buy into what this world says I should be. I'm not going to let this world squeeze me into its mold. I'm going to live out a different way of being human, a life lived for Christ and for others. It is radical. Yes, it is subversive. It is totally countercultural. And sometimes the world will hate you for it. Sometimes the world will despise you for living this way because it shows the world something about what it means to be truly human, and that's convicting for other people. But this is the way of life that is in Christ Jesus. This is the transformation of our character. This is the moral vision of what it means to live as a Christian. It's putting off the old, and it's putting on the new. Let me just point out one other thing in this list before we move on and wrap up. There's one thing in this list I didn't put in these columns because it doesn't quite fit there, but it's so important. It's in verse 30. Just have a look in there. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve or not grieve the Spirit of God? Well, it's not the same thing as blaspheming the Holy Spirit, if you're wondering. You Think about what it would mean for you to grieve someone. It would mean for you for you to hurt them, to wound them, to cause them pain. It's exactly the same thing with God. Paul says when, when we live these old self-behaviors, when we default back to that and we live in these old self-ways, what we are doing is we're grieving the Holy Spirit. We are grieving God. We are causing God heartache. We're breaking His heart. Now, that that doesn't make God some kind of weak deity, this kind of emotionally fragile God who's going to get his feelings hurt and he's insecure. Now, it makes God greater, I think, not lesser. It makes God so great that he could be the king of the universe and still allow himself to enter into a relationship with us where he can be grieved by us, where he can be hurt by us, because this is a relationship. It's not just a transaction. It's not just a formality. It's a relationship where we can grieve God. God can be grieved by us. And Paul doesn't say that to make you feel guilty so that you feel worse about yourself because now I'm causing God pain. He, he says it so that you see what's going on here. That when we live in those old self ways, what we are doing is distancing ourselves from God. We're pulling away from him. That's the point. Not just breaking rules. We're pulling away from God. And when we live into these new self ways, when we pursue these new ways of life, what we are doing is we are allowing ourselves to be drawn closer to God. These ways of living come out of a deepening relationship with God, and they lead to a deepening relationship with God. Of course, God already loves you with an undying, unending love. He already loves you as much as he can possibly love you. That's never going to change, regardless of which column you live in day to day, minute by minute. But the point is that as we live out these new self-behaviors, as we live into this new way of life, we are drawn closer to God relationally. We're drawn into greater intimacy with Him. We're drawn into greater step with the Spirit. We're drawn into greater fellowship and greater communion with Him. Our relationship with God is deepened and strengthened as we live into that new way of life that's in Christ Jesus. So the point is that these, these columns, these lists, I know it's easy to see these as a bunch of rules. It's easy to look at that and go, great, now I've got a list of a whole lot more things that I need to do and not do. But the point is never about rules. The point is never about breaking commandments, keeping some and breaking others. It's not that. This is about relationship. It's about relationship with God. It's about avoiding those things that violate our relationship with God and grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's about living in those ways that draw us closer to God. That's the point. It is always all about our relationship, our connection with God, not just about keeping a whole lot of rules that God came up with. So here is what I want you to think about as we wrap up. Just two very simple questions because we want to make this practical for our lives and come right down to what this would mean for us today. If Paul was writing to us, what would he say to you? Well, here's two questions. One, what is it that God is calling you to put off in your life? Have another look at that list. Maybe it's something on that list. Maybe it's, not, it's something that's not on the list. That's not a, an exhaustive list of sins and vices. Maybe there's something else. And God's just tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you know, there's something there that I want you to put off. There's, there's something that you've been doing. There's just a, a way, a habit in your life. There's this thing that's going on. There's this area that you're messing around in. There's this way that you have of behaving or treating other people, whatever it is, and I want you to put it off. I want you to let that part of your old self die. What is that for you? It may be laziness. It may be some form of impurity. It may be a critical and a judgmental spirit. It may be a self-defensiveness. It may be emotional withdrawal in a relationship. Whatever it is, what is God nudging you and saying, there is a part of that old self, I want you to let it die. I want you to put it aside. It belongs to the old life. And I want you to set that aside. And this is not easy, right? I mean, what's going to happen is you'll walk out the door and you'll try to put off that old self and you'll realize it's really hard. And we don't realize it's really hard until we try doing it. And we try getting rid of some of these things in our life and we find that they've become entrenched. We find they've got a much stronger grip on our lives than we thought they did. We find some, in some cases, they've got to the level of addiction. And this is where we need one another. This is where you can't do it on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ working in your life, and you need the church family. So reach out for the help that's there. Talk to a friend, talk to a pastor, talk to a counselor, talk to a mentor, talk to a life group leader. Reach out for the help. We're a church family. We're here for each other. We're all on the road together, right? We're all pilgrims on the journey. The help is here. The support is here. So reach out and have someone else that you can talk to about this who can help you along that journey. And then here's the second question. What is it that God is calling you to put on? What is, is he prompting your heart with something? Maybe it's just the opposite of the thing that he's telling you to put off. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's on that list. Maybe it's not. But what is it that God is speaking to your heart this morning and saying, there's something I want you to put on. There's a new fruit of the Spirit that in this next season of your life, I want to cultivate this fruit in your life. Is it the fruit of joy? Is it patience with someone that really frustrates you? Is it self-control? Is it gentleness? Is it simply love, honoring and cherishing someone that God has given you to love? And God's saying, this is what I have for you in the next season of your life. By my spirit and in my power, I want you to put on This new attribute. Don't elbow the person next to you. You think about it for your own life. What is that thing that God is calling you to put on? Putting off and putting on. Friends, we'll never do this by ourselves, right? It's not that you're going to walk out of here and with a truckload of willpower, it's going to happen. It is only by the grace of God that any ounce of transformation can ever happen in our lives. It is only as we walk in step with him, draw near to him, remind ourselves of how loved we already are and allow him to continually fill us with his power that we will take those steps and you'll fail many times. It will many days feel like five steps forward and 10 steps backward. That's part of the journey too. That's part of the journey of life. But as you lean into Christ and this new way of living that is in Him, this new identity that you have in Him, as you draw on His strength, as you draw on His grace, as you let Him pick you up every time that you fail and put you back on that path, over the years, you will take steps forward and you will, by God's grace, see progress. It was the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who once prayed this prayer. He said, Now, Lord, with your help, I shall become myself. And those words I think resonate with what Paul is saying in this passage. This is not about becoming someone else. This is not about becoming a different person or becoming like someone else, unless we're talking about Jesus. This is about becoming who God has already made us to be. It, in fact, it's about becoming who we truly are in Christ Jesus. It's about becoming the truest and deepest self that we have. And we need to remember we have this new identity already. We are saved by God's grace alone. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever forget that. And now God is saying to you, I want you to take hold of that new identity, that deepest and truest, innermost part of yourself. And I want you to allow me to bring that out so that you live that out before other people. So that you live that out in the ordinary, in the minutiae, in just the everyday stuff of everyday life. That's the new self coming out. And as we do that, this big gap between what we believe and how we behave gets a little smaller. And that connection between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside becomes a little stronger. And the character of our lives reflects a little more the character of our Savior, whom we love. And an unbelieving world looks on and finds our faith a little more believable. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know this morning you know we're talking about things of our behavior, things of our lives. I know, Lord, how easy it is for all this to sound like it's full of guilt and full of obligation and just behaviorism. Lord, I just pray if there's anything that I've said this morning that comes across in that way, you'd just let that wash over us. Lord, I pray it would be much, much deeper than any of that. Lord, I pray that nothing of what Paul says here, nothing of what I've said here would be something that causes us shame and causes us guilt. But I pray, Lord, that you would free us to live out this new life. I pray that you'd bring us into a place of freedom, Lord. Not freedom to go back to the old ways and be who we were, but freedom to live into this new identity that we have in you, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would do this out of love. I pray we would do this even out of joy. And Father, as we look at the road before us, often it is so daunting and it feels so difficult and it is very, very hard. But Lord Jesus, we know that you have gone before us and you have walked this road for us. You've walked it perfectly. And it's your obedience that we already have. It's your faithfulness that we already have. It's your perfect walking of this road that makes it possible for us to take any step in that direction. And so Jesus, we just ask that you would come and fill us afresh. Fill us afresh with your grace. Fill us afresh with your love. And fill us afresh with your power so that we might take just a first step and then a second step and then a third and on and on into this new life that you've called us to. Make it practical for us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Lord, bring to our minds and our hearts those next steps that you want us to take. Keep prompting us and nudging us by your Holy Spirit. I pray you'd remind us, Lord, in the moment. That we are tempted to go back to the old ways. Remind us of what you've taught us this morning. Remind us of how you've convicted us this morning. And just nudge us towards the new self. Nudge us away from the old self in that moment. In that moment of temptation. In that moment of opportunity. Would you just nudge us by your spirit into those new ways of life. In the most ordinary ways, ordinary circumstances, ordinary conversations. Lord, we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, but we are so weak. And so we just say, come Holy Spirit, come and renew us, come and fill us, come and strengthen us afresh for the road that we are walking together. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.